Hi there, my name is Jake Williams. This is Wooden Teeth. I'm glad you're here with us. This week on the pod, we have Linda Blount. She is the CEO of Black Women's Health Imperative. Unsurprisingly, perhaps we're gonna talk about black women's health, but perhaps surprisingly, um, it's not gonna be just about how we can improve the health of black women, but how black women can help us understand health and thus improve it. You'll see. Another thing we're gonna talk about is public health and how we can get more people to understand what it is and why it's important. Linda Blount has um, a long, impressive career track record in both the public and the private sectors. And drawing from her private sector experience, she thinks about public health as a product that we need to do a better job of selling to the public. So check that out. This is the first of a couple different conversations that I had down in San Diego at the American Public Health Association's annual meeting. I hope you enjoy them. Um, I'm going to give you my usual sound quality caveats because we're doing things remotely and we're just getting started. If you have feedback on uh, the sound quality or the things that come out of my mouth or you have a topic that you want us to explore or someone that we've got to talk to, you can always give us feedback at our website, which is woodenteethshow.com or hit us up on Twitter. That handle is woodenteethshow. Okay, well, so without further ado, here is Linda Blount. Linda Blount. Am I saying your name right? Is it? All right, Linda Blount. You're clearly not from the South, because if you were I'm from not. the South, you would say Blount. Oh, really? But I say Blount because I'm from the North. Oh, you're from the North. Mm-hmm. Where in the north? Michigan. You are? Yeah. I am too. Where in Michigan? Jackson, Michigan. I know Jackson, Michigan. You've actually heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> I went to college at University of Michigan. Yes, you did. And, uh, Go Blue. Yeah. Did you? I absolutely. Yeah. I, I knew I liked you. I knew I liked you right away. Awesome. Uh-huh. Let's start there. So how do you, uh, what's your journey from Michigan to where you're at now, which is the Black Women's Health Imperative? Yeah, so I graduated uh, from the School of Public Health uh-huh. in Epidemiology, Yeah, where I was going to become a health services researcher. What's that mean? So I was going to study the delivery of care and, and do research on systems of care delivery and, and help hospital systems and practitioners um, take better care of patients and improve system performances, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So my first job actually was with a hospital system in Michigan, Sisters of Mercy. When I got in, there was a, a letter on my desk back then, you actually had an office. Uh-huh. Um, and the letter said that the person who hired me had resigned and I'd be taking his place as director of health services research. And I knew pretty much nothing about health services <laughs> research. <laughs> Um, and inquire, acquired a staff of 10 and had to sort of feel my way through the process. Um, uh, and fortunately, they took pity on me and, and I was able to, to do that. And, and within that hospital system did planning, um, strategic planning, uh, managed information systems. I had an engineering background also. Um, and you have an engineering background. How, how, what did you study? At, computer and, engineering in undergrad. Yep. You have quite an eclectic yeah. array of skills that you've acquired over over these years. All right, <laughs> keep going. Um, so did that and, and from there actually went to the Centers for Disease Control uh, where I did 
um, design GIS systems and surveillance systems for HIV to track HIV cases, mm-hmm. which was really a lot of fun. Uh, um, but my husband at the time um, got transferred. He's also at CDC, got transferred to the Caribbean. Um, so we packed up the family and moved to Trinidad and Tobago. Really? Where I, I really became exposed to sort of health disparities and differences in health outcomes. But when we came back, instead of going back into public health, I took a slight detour and worked for the Coca-Cola company for seven years, Uh um, where I was doing GIS kinds of work, only tracking things like share of stomach, Mm -hmm. if you can imagine that. Full disclosure, I've been mean to the Coca-Cola company in the past. (laughs) We can, that'll be a different podcast, but go ahead. (laughs) But but it was great because I learned one really valuable lesson at at, at Coke, um, um, which I apply now. But at a certain point, I needed to get back to public health. Went to work for the American Cancer Society, where I was the first vice president, national vice president for health disparities. Then ran all the programs at um, United Way in Atlanta. And from there, moved to the Black Women's Health Imperative, where I'm CEO. And the thing that became so important to me in that public health journey, um, really coming out of the Coca-Cola experience, is that we in public health have a product to sell, but we don't do it very well. Our product is health. But the way we present information, the way we talk about health to people, at least nowadays, is not in a way that they can readily sort of understand it and act on it. Coke makes its products seem like the thing you got to do, you got to have. And so what I'm focused on now is trying to make health be that thing you got to do, that thing you got to have. So that it's really a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I talk a a lot about in my work. Um, We think a lot about how people conceive of the phrase health or public health. And, you know, we've done polling and focus groups and you know, people tend to associate health with stuff that happens in the doctor's office. But as you know, it's, it's much more than that. So do you have the magic words? What are the magic words to uh, you know, how we describe what public health is? Well, you know, I mean, the public health people would, would say it's, it's all kinds of things. I mean, so we talk about population health. So how do you improve the health of the population and all of those determinants of population health? I spend a lot, a lot of time talking about health inequalities, health disparities, health inequities. So it's what are the systems, processes, policies, the things that are in place that present an unfair advantage to some or an unfair disadvantage to others? Um, So we know that that health is much more than personal behavior. Much of what determines our health Mm -hmm. outcomes has nothing to do with personal behavior. It is all of those other things out there. Um, But what's interesting is is when I started with the Black Women's Health Imperative, the first thing that we did was we actually conducted a survey of Black women. We asked them to define health. Hmm. So we, we just asked, it was purely a qualitative analysis. We asked them, just give us words and phrases. What does health mean to you? And as it turned out, about 85% of the words that black women use to define health were psychosocial. Things like, I'm calm, I'm at peace, really? I'm in control. About 10% of the words were financial. I can keep a roof over my head. I can take care of my kids. Only about 5% of the words that black women use to define health had anything to do with physical health, health or disease state. So that informed us enormously that basically the way we've been approaching health and health programs and health messaging has been wrong because we've been talking about trying to avoid disease when that actually has not been the number one priority. Why do you think that is? I mean, I've seen some other studies that I just referenced where people 
didn't have that response necessarily. And what, what is it about black women that frankly informs them better about what health actually is? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's because, you know, what they think about when it comes to health is the context of their lives. We talk about the lived experiences. Mm -hmm. So, you know, black women don't view themselves as, as that embodiment of diabetes or obesity or poverty for that matter. I mean, we see our lives as much broader than that, which of course they are, and that's true for anybody. And so, you know, kind of what I heard from, from black women was if I can get my money right, my spirit right, and my mind right, I can take care of everything else. Mm -hmm. I don't need to worry about diseases specifically. And I would say, in fact, we have a fair amount of research that supports that. Uh, we did work with the, the Black Women's Health Study, the authors at, at BU. And, you know, th this is a, a longitudinal study. It's 25 years old, 60,000 women. Turns out the majority of the women in the study self-rate their health as very good or excellent. So they don't view themselves as, you know, that, that sort of what we say broke and broke down. Um, and, and so what, what we're doing now is instead of talking about disease only and, and disparities. Black women have 42% higher mortality from breast cancer and you know, 10 times more likely to do this. We come at it from an asset perspective, a positive perspective in terms of here's what black women are doing to be healthy. So we published a report from that study that was on what healthy women do. Mm -hmm. Because I figure after, you know, it's been 35 years since the Heckler report, the very first report on, on health disparities mm -hmm. among at the African-American population, things are worse now in many respects than they were in 1985. So it can't hurt us to start um, to look at this issue from a different perspective. And what we have found is women have been very receptive to presenting their lives and their health in a positive context and then giving them tools and strategies to act from a position of strength rather than a position of deficit or weakness. And so how would you describe the mission of the Black Women's Health Imperative? So our mission is to make sure that Black women have the tools, strategies, information they need to make the best choices possible to live as healthy as they can. That's one piece. The other piece, though, is to, to make sure that our advocacy work and our policy work and the research translation work addresses those structural barriers that keep women from making those choices. And how long have you been at this? This is year, I'm ending year five, um, but the organization is 35 years old and we're the only national organization focused on black women's health. And what are your advocacy priorities in the near term here? So um, of course, access to healthcare mm -hmm. um, um, and health insurance, um, making sure that representation in clinical research is there and that the evidence-based includes black women and black men. Um, we also advocate for um, equitable disaster preparedness. You know, some communities are more affected by natural disasters than others and less likely to get immediate help than others. And our fourth sort of policy priority is making sure that HBCUs um, get remain funded and, and hopefully get their funding increase because at, at historically black colleges and universities, black women make up about 60% of the student body. And if things like Title IX funding were to go away, this could adversely impact women because after financial concerns, intimate partner violence, sexually transmissible diseases, um, and unintended pregnancy are the leading causes of college dropout. 
I think the statistic that hurts my heart the most when it comes to Black women's health is the fact that infants of Black women die at a rate that is double that of white babies in the first year of life. What can we do to fix this? Well, we can start with listening to Black women. So that statistic is, is very sad. Um, it is true. And in some locales, it's even worse. Um, you're familiar with the maternal mortality statistics. Black women die three to four times uh, more often than white women. In New York, it's actually 12 times. Wow. Um, black educated professional women earning more than $100,000 a year have the mortality, the maternal mortality rates equivalent to white women without an eighth grade education. Hmm. So this isn't just an issue of, of poverty. So what we can start doing is listening. Providers are trained to provide care based on an evidence, body of evidence that doesn't include black women. And so we need to do more research to understand what is it. We, again, we talk about the lived experiences of black women. What is it about being a black woman in the society that makes you more susceptible to having a low birth weight baby or dying after you, you know, within hours or weeks after having a baby? We need to look at the way systems of care deliver. There's a, a model called centering pregnancy, which has been hugely beneficial to show. And we need doctors and providers, it's not just physicians, but practitioners to, to think about what else might be happening in that woman's life. There, there's a, a body of research around stress. Um, Felita Mask Jackson is, is, has published a number of papers and it shows that stress is a huge determinant for birth outcomes. Um, black women are just more stressed and it, and it shows up um, during pregnancy and immediately after pregnancy. And is there a, a myth about the experience of black women or, or black women's health that you are particularly intent on busting? There's so many, unfortunately. Um, so the, 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 the message black women get, what we see, what we get from the media, um, and it's, it's interesting when you talk to people who don't live in this country and ask them about black women in particular, that the myth of, you know, you've got the myth of the mammy or the, the Jezebel. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's been a number of studies that show that medical students are less likely to prescribe HIV prevention medication to black women because they think they're just gonna engage in risky sex, sexual mm -hmm. behavior. Mm -hmm. um, so the, all of that sort of comes down to a sense of value and worth. And the message that black women get is, we're not worthy, we're not valuable. And so the, the one, you know, if I had to pick one, the message that we try to give to black women every day through our work, through our policy work, through our advocacy work, through our research is, you are worthy, you are valuable because you did one thing, you woke up and that's all that is necessary. And if we take that message and make sure it's infused in all of our work, whether it's diabetes prevention or HIV prevention or maternal mortality, you know, women that resonates and it's much more likely to get women to sort of sit up and say, okay, I, I think I know what I can do, but we also have to get that message to, to everybody else. And much of what's happening here at APHA is around racial equity and, and gender equity and what that means for the lived experiences of black and brown women in this country. 
So often in elections, um, black women are the saviors for democratic candidates. And it's, it's happened time and again. Uh, and it seems that, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that these same candidates who are victorious because of black women don't necessarily go on and do the things that um, are meaningful to improve the quality of life uh, for black women. And so if you think that's the case, um, uh, what would you say to those politicians who benefit from the electoral participation of this demographic, but don't necessarily step up to the plate to deliver for that segment of our society? So, you know, this is, this you can imagine is an ongoing discussion. Two years ago, black, 94% of black women voted for the Democratic candidate, for Hillary Clinton. Um, and it was interesting, I was in a meeting the day after of, of women's, women's reproductive justice groups, and there was much gnashing of teeth and wringing of hands, crying. And what was clear was, and I was the only black person in the room, what was clear was that this group didn't understand its base. It, it made some assumptions about what white women were going to do. And mm -hmm. so there was this, oh, what are we going to do? And Linda, what are you going to do? And I said, Why? What, what do you mean, what am I going to do? Nothing. I mean, 94% of us voted the way you thought everybody else was going to vote. Um, and so what, what happened at that moment for me was I realized we had to do something. The Black Women's Health Imperative had to do something. So... Two months ago, we published the first ever legislative agenda on Black women's health, specifically for this election cycle. It's called Black Women Vote 2018. And we did it so that we could lay out the issues, the policies, policies, legislations, legislative issues that are important to Black women. And then we gave it to those groups that do the get out the vote work and advocacy work, along with a report card so they could say, Here's where the candidates stand on these key policy issues for Black women's health. And after they get elected, here's how you hold them accountable. So it is incumbent upon us to hold our elected officials accountable. We tend to vote and say, okay, well, we've done it. That doesn't work anymore. Now we've got to make sure that we're checking in with them regularly. You said, elected official, here's, how you, here's where you were on this issue. Now do something. And we're going to keep reminding you that you have not done that thing. And I think if we do that, certainly at, at scale, we'll have, a much, we'll have much more success at seeing the kind of change that we want. Because what happens is, you know, we let the elected officials off the hook. You know, they're campaigning, they're making promises. I'm not saying they, they don't necessarily mean them, but that's part of campaigning. And then they get mm -hmm. into office and they're doing what they do. And if nobody reminds them of who voted for them and why they voted for them and why they are in that office, then it's very easy to get away from the very people who put you there. And that's our concern. And so we'll be using this agenda over the next two years, we'll be revising it and we'll have a black women vote 2020 again for the general elections to say, we are going to hold you accountable. Do you think we're gonna have a female president in your lifetime? Yeah, I think so. Well, you're super young too, so I mean, <laughs> you know, we have like a century left, age, right? So. Yeah. Um, it's certainly possible. Um, the, the 2016 election was was troubling. You know, you look at 13% you know, of black men voted for Trump, 30% of Latinos voted for Trump. 
So clearly, you know, there's a huge segment of the population that was not ready for a woman. Um, this year, we saw incredible gains by women, 100 more women in Congress. And, you know, Stacey Abrams is obviously you know, sort of fighting for her, the election there. Um, but women have made huge gains. So, yes, I think that will happen. But it means that the, you know, whatever the party, the power structure behind have to involve, have to get behind these women. And what we have seen is some reluctance for the various power structures to support women. Um, and if that happens, absolutely. Uh, last year, somebody asked me if 2018 was going to be the year of the black woman. And at the time, I said, well, you know, it could be. If we get out and vote and, and we're doing the things we ought to. And so I think this year we, we saw that, um, or certainly saw the potential. Um, the number of black women elected officials is up dramatically. Women turned out to vote. Black women turned out to vote. So I think, I think things are finally beginning to resonate um, across the country, not only with black women, but particularly with black women who realize the kind of power that they have. Thinking about power structures and women and the power that women have, your personal experience, you've done well. Um, I'm sure you're proud to be uh, where you're at. What lessons have you learned that perhaps you'd like to share with other women listening um, about the workplace and life in general? Yeah, um, I, I have been fortunate. Um, I was able to grow up in a stable home and not have a whole lot of drama. I had, my folks had resources, I could go to school had healthcare, good education, um, and had people who paved the way for me. Um, so I, there's, there's nobody who does who gets to be a success on his or her own. That just does not happen. And so, you know, you know sort of the, the, the easy thing to say is find that thing you're passionate about and do it, whether you get paid or not. Um, but in reality, you know, we have to earn a living. And so the thing I say is, you know, it's all in relationships. You know, surround yourself with people you can trust, people who will support you, people you can support. Because at the end of the day, you know, on one's dying bed, no one ever says, gee, I wish I'd spent more time in the office. Yeah. It's always, if I had only been there more for my family, for my friends, if I'd been available, start there. Um, because while we're concerned about disease, it's really about mental health. And if you're mm -hmm. calm, if you're at peace, you can pretty much handle a lot of other things. And your life, at least for me, takes on a different perspective. Um, I really want to see the day when a black woman wakes up in the morning, she looks out, she thinks about her day, and she doesn't have to worry about her boss or coworkers second guessing her or people looking at her strangely when she walks into a department store or tensing up when she gets on the elevator. I, I want her to be able to think, you know, if I have an idea, it'll be it'll be received in the spirit in which I've offered it. Mm -hmm. People will respect me. People will value me. And if things don't go as I'd like them to go, I know I've got resources to deal with whatever those obstacles are. And I don't have to be afraid. So, you know, I want women to kind of envision that and create those kinds of relationships around them that help that happen. Um, you know, obviously working is, is really important and I've, and I've been fortunate, 
but at the end of the day, it's you know, what's important is you know, sort of the quality of your life and those relationships. Wise words. Finally, um, you have anything you want to plug? You got something coming up? You want to direct people to a certain thing? Well, um, they should definitely go to our website, bwhi.org. The report that we did on healthy black women and as well as our policy agenda are there for available free download, um, as well as lots and lots of information on black women's health. But the thing I would say to sort of stay tuned for is we have a, a series called Real Talk, Real Women. Uh-huh. And we're taking it on the road. We've already done seven of them already where we convene women just to talk about what's important in their health and what they can do and what they have done and what they can learn and what they have learned. And we bring in various notable folks. Um, we just did a session with Michelle Bernard, an MSNBC political analyst, to just have a, a conversation. As our, our founder, Billy Avery, likes to say, you know, we just take our shoes off and talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people should go to our website, look for where those sessions are. They're free show up, come with your questions, bring your children, um, come ready to share an experience or listen. Because we're really serious about this notion of how black women define health and what's important to them and making sure that black women across this country know that there's an organization that's, that's there for them, that's doing everything it possibly can to make sure they live their healthiest um, and happiest lives. Linda Blount. This was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. All right. There it is. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Linda. She had me feeling good. She had me feeling positive, which is important, I know, for many of you this time of year during the holidays. Sometimes this time of year is energizing. Sometimes it can be challenging for some of us. Um, We're going to talk actually later uh, in future podcasts about mental health. So stay tuned for that. Again, if you want to hear about something, give us feedback. The website, woodenteethshow.com. On Twitter as well, woodenteethshow is the handle. And rate us, subscribe. We love you. I'll see you later. Thank you.